It is uh, Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 2, uh, verse 3. So settle in. <laughs> in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, uh, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruits bearing, and trees bearing fruit in which their seed, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, according to each to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the, in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the lights from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given him, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Lord, to hear your word read is itself an act of worship, to listen, to hear. Uh, we pray this morning that you would lead us into deepen understanding of what it means to be worshipers and to, to be worshipers in the context of your creation. And so wherever we find ourselves this morning um, in places um, of distraction or um, strife or restlessness, or peace, Lord, that you would meet us by your word and that you would bring rest and that you'd bring peace, uh, the same peace that Jesus brought um, when he said peace to us after the resurrection. So be with us this morning and meet us in your word and by your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys thought I was going to go easy on you after Easter? Take a break, maybe? Think again. Um, I just thank you, uh, Austin, for reading that. I asked him right before the service to do that. Because I realize <clears throat> that if I did that, that gives me five extra minutes that you guys, you know, get, are more patient with me. Um, but I, I, had, I thought it was important to read the whole text, and hopefully after this sermon is done, you'll understand why that's important. This uh, morning, we begin a new sermon series, and one I did not realize I was going to do until sometime in the middle of last week. Sometimes the Spirit works in mysterious ways. Um, but we're going to be reflecting, um, it's already growing longer too, I thought I could do it six weeks, but it's going to go into the summer, but I hope, <laughs> hope that'll be good. Um, <clears throat> the first question of the Heidelberg, rather the Westminster Catechism, wonderfully captures the essence of what it means to be a human being. Um, it asks, what is the chief end of man? man and woman? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, as human beings, we are created for worship. Or Augustine, at the very beginning of his book, his autobiography, The Confessions, very famously puts, puts it this way. He says, to praise you, Lord, is the desire of man. A little piece of your creation, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you, because you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until it rests in you. Love that phrase. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We were created by God. We are created for God. And um, we only discover our full and true humanity when we worship God. That's what the Heidelberg Catechism, Catechism means, or I keep calling it the Heidelberg Catechism, 
The Westminster Catechism means when it says our chief end of being human is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, for many of us, this is very familiar territory, and it's a very compelling and lovely picture of what it means to be a human being. Um, nevertheless, when we step back and we reflect upon all of our lives, we often experience a, a sense of disconnect uh, between our everyday life and experience and this idea that all of our lives should be defined by the, the praise and the worship of God. Many of us, and myself included as a pastor, often feel a gap in our experience between weekday life where we're working and managing our households and spending time um, doing various things and our Sunday morning worship time. And it's not just a difference in, in, in sort of the amount of time we spend, right? So maybe you know, these services are about an hour and 20. Um, maybe you give two hours to church on a Sunday and then how many hours in the rest of the week? But it's not just that, it's also there's a, there's a, a difference in the, what we do, right? What I do during the week, or what you do during the week, in your neighborhood, or at school, or in the marketplace, the way you talk, the kind of work you do, is very different from what we do here in the worship service, right? From the outside, you know, it, we can look at our lives in worship and kind of see this time right now as a bit of an anomaly to everything else we do. Now, in part, in part, this experience, I think, is a symptom of living in uh, a secular age. In a secular age, worship is a bit strange, because as a culture, we don't see the practical necessity of God in our lives. Um, we believe in God, <laughs> We believe in God's existence, but God's existence doesn't have any practical necessity. Um, we don't know really where God fits, except for in that sort of interior space of our hearts and our spiritualities, right? Um, the theologian Alexander Schmemann, who is a Greek Orthodox theologian, describes our experience of living in a secular age this way, and I I, I've used this before, but he talks about living in a secular age is one in which we experience the negation of man as a worshiping being. In other words, what he's saying there is that to live in a culture like ours is to negate or to cancel out a human being as a worshiping being. So the whole shape of society is one that finds worship kind of strange and odd and irrelevant. I think when we think about secularism or the secular, we tend to think of it as like open hostility towards belief in God. But, but this is actually, most people don't care what you believe. <laughs> they don't, they, they're fine if you believe in whatever you want. The biggest challenge, I think, is the, the assumption of God's non-existence, practically speaking, and how all of our lives are shaped. And this is the whole atmosphere to where there's a sense of just a continual sense of diminishment and reduction of the centrality and the importance of worship in our lives as human beings. Our culture functionally doesn't see the necessity of worship. It's good if you want to do it on your own. That's great. And I think, you know, um, you know the, the average person who is not a person of faith 
um, sees worship as, you know, I think at best quaint and, and perhaps strange, but mostly irrelevant. And I, I think this impacts us as Christians as well, because for us, I think, my observation as a pastor is that public worship is less and less important for most Christians. It has less significance and priority in their lives. This is what Shmemen means by the negation of, of worship of man, as, of human beings as worshipers. Now, the goal of this series is to help us bridge this gap, um, the gap between our experience of the world at work and school and other places and worship. And this whole idea is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever and to, to offer a way of integrating worship into all of our lives, especially in our time of the secular. I've called this series The Liturgical Life. Most of you are probably familiar with this word since you've been around this church for a while of liturgy. You know, a, a liturgy, this is a liturgy, what's contained in here is a liturgy. It's the order, it's the order of service, it's how you know what's going to happen next in a service. Now, I realize this word liturgy has a lot of baggage for a lot of people. Um, if you grew up in an evangelical church, um, you never, you weren't taught to think about worship in liturgical terms. Liturgical, and, and for many people, refers to a style of worship that, you know, is kind of formal and stuffy and traditional and ritualistic. And for many people who or kind of fleeing Roman Catholicism or Episcopal mainline churches. Liturgy is kind of like, ah, no thank you. But when I talk about liturgy, I'm not referring to a style of worship. Liturgy, all churches have liturgies. Even churches that are more charismatic and they have nothing printed and it's, uh, it seems like it's just spontaneous. There's a liturgy there. It's just not written down. And it's just a question of how much liturgy. And some liturgies are more... Uh, detailed and structured than other liturgies. All churches have liturgies. But when I talk about liturgy, I'm not talking about a style of worship. I'm talking about a theological idea that is deeply biblical. This word liturgy is a biblical word. It doesn't show up very often, but it does show up a number of places uh, in the scriptures. And it's the word liturgia. And, and it's a compound word in the Greek, which brings together two very vivid images, one of people, litos, and of of Erga, which is work. And so you all, some of you know this, is that liturgy literally means the work of the people. The work of the people. And in the Old Testament and uh, in the New Testament, what you see associated with this word is usually associated with a priest, such as Zechariah in, in, in Luke 1. It says that when he left his liturgy work, he went home to his family, right? If you remember, Zechariah was offering prayers, and he met the Gabriel, angel Gabriel in the sanctuary. That liturgy is it's the public service of worship that a priest carries out in the presence of God on behalf of the people. That is the, the kind of technical understanding of liturgy in the Old Testament. And it's associated with all kinds of things in the tabernacle, in the temple, um, burning incense, purifications, offering up prayers, in, in various forms of sacrifice. <clears throat> in the New Testament, we also have liturgy, but it's different, right? It's the things that you find in our worship folder. It's call to worship, confession of sin, sacred readings, prayers of the people, baptism, Lord's Supper, preaching, all this and more. 
are those parts and aspects of the liturgy. Some of those we heard in our sacred reading from Colossians. Liturgy, and here's, here's a definition you might hang your hat on a little bit. Liturgy is the rightly ordered work that we carry out in the world and in worship that reflects God, the true nature of God as creator and redeemer. Liturgy is the rightly ordered works and acts that we perform that reflects the true nature of God as creator and redeemer. Now, I think what's key for us here is understand that liturgical actions that we do in the service are not limited to the service. The things that we do as we gather week after week are formative of our character and how we perceive and engage the world outside of the worship context. So for instance, the call to worship. <clears throat> There's often in the Psalms you have this, awake, awake my soul. Right? So every day that we wake up in the morning, there's a sense in which we need to be called into God's presence, be reminded that God is God and that we're in his presence. Or you think about um, during the week, right? We confess our sins, but we shouldn't wait till the end of the week to confess our sins. We should be confessing our sins through the week. This applies to all aspects of worship. Um, the liturgical life, as I'm calling it, is one in which we have this developed imagination of how the ritual shape of our life, all the different aspects of our life, can be an expression of the worship of God. That's what I mean by liturgical life. It's, it's one in which we have this imagination for how the ritual, the, the ritual of our, all of our lives can be an expression of the worship of God. There's a couple quotes in the beginning of your worship folder that I think nicely capture this more expansive view of worship. Uh, Robert Taft puts it this way. He says, the purpose of Christian liturgy is, is so to express in ritual moment that which we should see as basic to every moment of our lives. And my favorite is, is actually of, of Aidan Kavanaugh, who is a very well-known liturgical scholar, Roman Catholic. He says, liturgy is doing the world the way the world is meant to be done. I love that. That's, that's us. In a nutshell, I want to try to show you that to you through the next uh, number of weeks, that liturgy is doing the world the way the world was meant to be done. A proper understanding of liturgy is one that shapes how we engage the whole world. It's not just for sacred spaces and sacred times that we gather, but teaches, the liturgy teaches how, how to do the world right, how to know the world right, how to inhabit the world as creatures of God's good creation. So that is a summary of this sermon series in a nutshell. And it starts, it starts with understanding that creation itself is a liturgical space. What we see in Genesis 1 is that creation comes about through a series of liturgical actions of God. Genesis 1 is a liturgical text. I thought it was very important for the whole text to be read. I know it was long, but it was very important, and I hope that you kind of heard it, the repetition and the pattern and the progression. It's a liturgical text, and there's a sense in which all of creation comes about into existence as an act of worship. That's very much what that text is trying to teach us, and it helps us understand how liturgy and worship in our life is not something that is just limited to this time and this place. It's never less than that, but it's not limited to this. 
Liturgy, properly understood, reflects the very structure of creation itself, such that creation is liturgically made and constructed and ordered, which means to live within it well as creatures is to be liturgical and to have a liturgical life. Okay, I know this is very high level right now. Let's bring it down a little bit more. Let's look at, I want to draw your attention to three uh, features. There's more than that, but three in particular in beginning observations about the liturgical nature of, gen of this chapter. The first one is this. There's a repetition in the text that reflects a pattern of how God creates, which, which points towards the stability of the created order for life. Right? There's a repetition and there's a pattern. Uh, so, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let there be an expanse. And there was expanse. And God said, and God said, and God said. Nine different times, and God said. Four different times it says, and God saw that it was good. Three different times it says, and God blessed. And after each day it says, and there was morning, and then there was evening on the third day. See, if you look at the, the text, you see all kinds of, of symmetry and ordering and progression. All the things that we kind of think of as, as liturgical. And this is very important. This is very important because it, what it reveals about the creation is that there is, there is a pattern, there is an organization, there is stability and regularity and a certain amount of predictability such that you can live within it. And if you compare the Genesis account of creation with other uh, accounts of creation in that time in the ancient Near Eastern, it's, it's striking how different the Hebrew account is. Because in the accounts of, say, the Epic of Gilgamesh and others, creation comes about as a sort of act of war between the gods against one another, such that there's blood and violence that sort of are at the very heart and the core of creation itself. But in the Old Testament, in Genesis 1, there's none of this. It's, it's almost like creation. You think of Aslan, which one of the chronicles where he sings creation into existence. Remember that? This is kind of that. God is singing creation into existence, liturgically speaking. And what that means is that it's a good place. It's a habitable place. There's stability and there's regularity. I mean, uh, you think about children when they're very young especially, and as a parent you learn this, is that kids need structure. They need it. They absolutely have to have it. Regular bedtimes, regular mealtimes. Uh, they don't want it often, but they need it, right? So you have to have boundaries and rules and structures and borders for their flourishing. And we as human beings are no different. We need that in order to live in a way that leads to flourishing. So that's the first thing I want to, I want you to see the connections here, right? The second thing I want you to see is that there's a pattern in how God creates between call and response. There's a pattern of call and response. You might think of it as a kind of dialogue that God has with creation itself. <clears throat> Even though creation responds, not with words, but by, with actions, right? So God calls out and says, let it be. Let it be. And creation responds by doing what God says. So let the earth bring forth creatures according to its kind. And it was so. Again, we do this pattern again and again six different times. Let it be. And it was so. And what's so interesting here is this. That word, let it be, in, in the grammar, it's called the jussive. It's, it's sort of, you know, it's this, let it be. It's different from make it so. God doesn't say, make it so, and then it happens. He says, let it be. 
Right? There's, there's a sense where God is calling forth creation, and that creation then responds, which means that creation has its own kind of dignity and integrity as it responds to God. Creation, it's, it's let it be, not make it so. And so there's a kind of, again, a call and response. There's a dialogue. The created order, God actually invests the creation with its own sort of agency to kind of rule itself. This is very important. The created order is not just putty in God's hand that he just moves around like this. There's a kind of call and response. God is all-powerful. That's very clear. He creates out of nothing. He has all power and authority, but he's not domineering. And he's not overbearing. There's a very fine line here. So that's the other thing. So there's this pattern of call and response. And this is how God relates to us as human beings. The thing is this. Creation is organized around the rhythms of sacred time. Now, when you look back and you look at Genesis 1 as a whole, something really striking stands out. Is that the emphasis is actually not on the creation of the physical universe. Is not, the focus is not on matter and things and even space itself. The focus is on time. It's on time. That's the thing that really stands out. In the beginning, right? That, the very first word, in the beginning. That's a time marker. The first thing God creates are light. God creates the lights. Why? Not for the sake of photosynthesis, for the plants to, why does he create light? To separate the, the darkness from the day. Light exists for the sake of time. We need days. We need to be able to distinguish night and day when God creates the, the heavens, the stars, the moon. It says it to rule over the day. That's another way of saying to govern the seasons, right? There's, there's, there's attention to time. God creates with days. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. There was evening, there was morning on each of these days. And there's the climax of the whole text is day seven. So God blessed the seventh day, which we call the Sabbath, and made it holy. Because of it, God rested from his work that he had made in creation. God consecrates the seventh day. There's nothing else that God creates in Genesis 1 that he makes holy, that he consecrates. And I think this is really important. Within the, Sabbath, within the Jewish tradition, Sabbath becomes the day of worship in particular. And the significance is this, that God doesn't set anything apart within creation as holy, but what he sets apart as holy, time. Time, Sabbath. And I think this is very important, and I'm just going to highlight something we'll come back to in the weeks to come. I'm going to preach on Sabbath. But a proper experience of God in creation has to do with how we experience time and the observance of Sabbath. That's so important. It's time that God makes sacred. And there's a way that by making time sacred, the rest of creation can become sacred and set apart. Now, one of the things when you read commentaries on Genesis um, 1 in particular is that all commentators are agreed that what is depicted in Genesis 1 is creation as a kind of cosmic temple. Creation as a cosmic temple. Um, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, temples were places where the gods were thought to dwell. And when you look at those temples and the descriptions of them, those temples were understood to be microcosms of the whole cosmos. In other words, they were like little miniature, you know, like, like depictions of the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And it's actually no different with, with the Jewish tradition. 
When you read about the, what's in the tabernacle or what's in the temple and all the art, and it's imagery drawn from the garden, it's imagery drawn from creation. Because the idea is this, is that this temple, especially in the Jewish tradition, doesn't really contain God, but it represents the way in which God indwells the whole of creation as a temple. And, and the, way that, the thing that stands out most in this is the very end on the day seven. This is the thing that really kind of draws this home, where it says that God rested from all his work that he had done. And it's that word rested that's very important here. Um, rest is also a word that's used for presence or indwelling presence. So the idea is this, is that God creates the heavens and the earth, and then when he finishes work, what he does is he rests, right? There's, there's a double meaning here. He rests, he's not working anymore, but he's also dwelling. He's dwelling in that which he just created because he made creation a place in which he could dwell. Now, I think this is a very important truth, um, this idea that God, that all of creation is a temple for his presence, that all of creation is a place for the presence of God. Think of Psalm 139. This is that great truth from Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. If I take the wings in the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there, even there, in Sheol, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand hold me. This is such an important truth for us to recover and reflect upon in our secular age. Because the way we think about space in the world is the world is largely a kind of vacant space, empty and devoid of the presence of God. We tend not to go through our daily lives in thinking that God is present to me, <laughs> closer to me, as Augustine would say, than I am to myself. Now, there's all kinds of complications with discerning God's presence in creation after the fall, especially. And this will be a major theme that I will follow through this series. Because after sin comes into the world, God's presence is not as accessible and knowable as it was prior to that. But <clears throat> the point I want you to, to think about is that the liturgical life is one that's meant to orient you to the presence of God in all of creation. That's, that's what a liturgical is, to orient you to the presence of God within all of creation, to become attuned and aware that God is near me. The liturgical life is one that orients us to the presence of God within all of creation, but there's one last thing I want to draw your attention to and close with. It's the way in which a liturgical life brings us to a place of rest within the chaos and the storminess of life. The liturgical life is one that is meant to bring us to a places of rest amidst the storminess and chaos of life. In Genesis chapter 1, there is a progression of God's creative activity that moves creation from a place of chaos to a place of rest. If you look at verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering, hovering over the face of the earth. 
or the face of the waters. Now that word, without form and void, sometimes it's, it's uh, translated rightly as chaos. The Hebrew word here is very evocative. Uh, it is the word tohu vavohu. Some of you know this word. Tohu vavohu. I mean, it just sounds like crazy, right? It, it, tohu vavohu is, is complete and total confusion and chaos. Prior to God's creating activity, at, the creation was completely uninhabitable. It was tohu vavohu, confusion. It was, it was inhospitable, ungovernable. It was no place that life could flourish or exist. There were no boundaries, there were no borders, nothing. It was chaos. And I think it's really, it's really significant that when the Bible speaks about sin and evil, it will often go back to this imagery of chaos, tohu vavohu that the presence of evil and sin in the world is, brings about tohu vavohu. It brings about chaos. It brings about confusion and destruction. Sin and evil is, a, is, a, is an act of uncreation. It's a kind of undoing of creation. It's a, when that sort of takes over our lives or parts of creation, things can't grow there. They don't develop. They, don't, they can't be nurtured. They can't flourish. Now, when God originally creates the world, and in this kind of primordial, the world is not evil. The tohu vavohir is, it's not evil, right? But when God begins to create, the creating process, attend, look, look at how God creates, right? Each thing he does brings a, an increasing degree of order and organization and distinction to the creation, to where it begins to be like just from a glob of, of, of clay to something that takes shape and form and has definition and boundaries and borders. And that's what you see God doing here, right? God is naming. He is separating. He is distinguishing animals according to their kind. When he creates human beings, he, he distinguishes male and female. He separates the heavens from the earth and the land from the sea and the birds of the air from the birds of the sea. This is what God is doing. He's, he's organizing, he's ordering, he's separating, he's distinguishing, all these things until they begin to shape into something that he calls very good. That is the creative process that God brings about in the midst of the tohu vavohu. Everything is moving from this chaotic darkness, and busy activity of creating to that of rest. The creation of the world starts as a place of chaos, but it ends as a place for rest. If you remember one thing I say today, that's it. The creation of the world starts as a place of chaos, but it ends as a place of rest. This is the driving point of Genesis 1. That's where it all ends. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because of it. God rested he indwelt from all his work that he had done in creation. And so again, the, the, the imagery here is moving from a stormy sea and ocean that's, that's just deadly to like a, a placid lake that's calm and still. God has brought the chaos of creation under control, and now he will indwell it with his presence. Creation has become a fit place for his indwelling. Now, friends, this, I think, is a very beautiful picture of how God works in our lives. All of us, I know about, <laughs> I have a lot of tohu vavohu inside of me at times. <laughs> Emotions, conflicted feelings, all these different things. A sense of restlessness. 
And sometimes the chaos of the world outside kind of comes inside of us. Remember what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God indwells you? Just like the Spirit of God hovering over the waters that are chaos, now the Spirit of God indwells us as a people, as persons, individuals, just in that way, bringing order and harmony and regularity and symmetry and beauty to these things. The Spirit hovers over the stormy waters of our life, and in a work of new creation, God brings order and calm and peace to lives that have been beset by sin and wrecked by the chaos of this world and evil. This is what I mean by the liturgical life. It's one in which God works in us and brings in our lives that, that beautiful creating order that then sort of goes out into the world. But most important, it brings rest. It brings rest. And, and I want you to think here too, that image of rest is not, it, it is, it's a cessation of a kind of work activity, but it's also presence. See, when God rests, he's present. And see, so that's why rest is so important in our lives. See, when we rest, we are present and that God is present with us. One of the marks of living in our society is a kind of restlessness. Like Augustine said, we're restless. And it's not just the internal restlessness that we experience, but it's also the storminess of the world outside of us that kind of overwhelms us. And that we have more control over nature, more technology, more things to make us more efficient so that we have to do less work. And yet, I think that for most of us, we feel busier, we feel more exhausted, we feel more restless and more threatened by the tohu vavohu than we ever have. The liturgical life is one that leads us to the place of true rest and a place of true peace because what it does is it returns us to the presence of God. When Jesus uh, was with his disciples and they were uh, crossing over the Sea of Galilee, there was a great storm that came up and Jesus was asleep on the boat and the disciples were in the boat and the waves, it says, were crashing over the bow of the boat and the boat was filling up with water and they're just... They're scared. I mean, they're in the tohu vavohu. Finally, Jesus wakes up. He wakes up and he just speaks to the sea and he says, peace, be still. And the water was calm. <laughs> Friends, this is, this is a picture of the worshiping life. When Jesus indwells us, what he can do is he can stand in the midst of the storms, the inner storms and the storms outside, and he just says, peace, be still. You're in my presence. It's okay. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that through your presence, you're, you're merely by your indwelling presence in our lives, whatever storms, whatever strife, whatever chaos um, threatens us and confuses us, you can speak to it and you can calm it. And I pray that today for all of us, that you would allow us to enter into that true Sabbath rest of your presence, that you are with us as your people. We give you thanks and praise. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.